And so we've been talking about signs over the last few weeks, and as the series continues, we're going to be talking even more about them. And what we've learned so far is that signs are meant to point beyond themselves to something greater, right? Signs are meant to point to something beyond itself to something greater. And to build on that, the nearer we get to the thing that the sign is pointing to, the clearer it gets, and in some cases, the experience becomes that much more thrilling. So, so in a sense, signs stir in us an anticipation. Right? Imagine, imagine planning a night out at your favorite restaurant. You, you open up their website a few days maybe before making a reservation, and, and while there, you start scrolling through the menu. Maybe they have pictures. Already you're beginning to salivate over whatever meal that you're envisioning eating. And, and then once you get to the restaurant, you're confronted with more signs as you begin to read through the menu again to make your decision. You look around at what other people have ordered. You smell the food being cooked and eaten all around you, and then it arrives in front of you. And then before that first bite, you take that one last whiff to really kind of draw all of it into you. And, and then you eat, and that bite... That bite outshines all the pictures and all of the aroma because now you are fully experiencing the thing that you have been anticipating. All those signs, the website, the pictures, the menu, and even the aroma were all driving us towards something, but now we're finally there. My hope is that as we work our way through the text this morning, you will see how Israel's story served as a sign pointing forward to something beyond anything they could have imagined and maybe beyond what we ourselves might be expecting. Right? So I want you to hold that in your heads for a little bit because there's, there's a little bit of a surprise ending um, as we draw near the close of the sermon this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John's Gospel. We'll be looking at John 1, 14 through 18 this morning. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that the Gospel of John has a way of meeting the needs of both the first-time reader, whether that be a brand-new Christian or even someone coming to the Bible as a, a first-time seeker, while at the same time being deep enough to explore for an entire lifetime. Verse 14 is a prime example of that. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so verse 14, a couple of observations that stand out. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in verse 14 because there's so much there. As you start picking at it, new things start to pop up. And, and the first thing that stands out is that John draws our attention back to the word. He draws our attention back to the word. He hasn't used that phrase since verse 1. And so basically what he's saying is we're still talking about this pre-creation being who John identifies as the creator God, the source of life and light, the one who shined into the darkness and wasn't overcome by, by it. And then he says something outrageous. He says the word became flesh. The word became flesh. And so if you're tracking with the story, this pre-existent being, this pre-creation being, who John identifies as God, who John identifies as being with God, who John identifies as the creator, what he's saying now is, is that being became flesh. 
Now, as Christians, this is like our story. We talk about this um, at Christmas time. We talk about the incarnation. And for some reason, and, and, I, and I believe this because I think it happens to me as well, is, is we don't fully grasp what the text is getting at. When it says the word became flesh, sure, we envision Jesus in, in a manger, and we envision all these beautiful stories of, of Christmas time, but, but we have to wrap our minds around what John is getting at. God, the one who spoke creation into existence, stepped into it, and he took on flesh. That's a big deal. And, and what I, I want to challenge us as, as readers of the Bible is to slow down and not just say, yeah, 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 I know that. Because yeah, 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 we know that. But if we really wrap our minds around it, it should grasp us in a very particular way. One commentator refers to this as the supreme revelation, the supreme revealing. In other words, the infleshing of the word superseded and outshined any and all of God's previous self-expression. And it's why the author of Hebrews says that long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. One commentator says it like this, and I have a slide for it. The word, God's very self-expression, who was both with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin, God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical man. When the word became flesh, God became man. God became man. The text continues and it says that the word became man and dwelt among us. Another massively important statement. And it's one of those situations where a surface reading says one thing, but when we scratch a little bit at it, we start to see something incredible. See, this word dwelt, it's probably better translated as pitched his tent. Now, that's a better rendering of that particular word. The word pitched his tent. And for Jewish readers familiar with the Greek Old Testament, this was a clear allusion to the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness, which was the mobile precursor of the temple so that the Lord God might dwell in their midst. That was the purpose of the temple. That was the purpose of the tabernacle, that there would be a place in the midst of God's people where God would dwell, where he would be with the ones he created, where he would be with the ones he loved. In other words, when John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, what he is saying is that the temple presence of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the Shekinah glory, for those of you who have been around the Bible for a little bit, the Shekinah glory of God that resided in the Holy of Holies was now infleshed and wandering around ancient Israel. You guys catching that? Was now infleshed and wandering around ancient Israel. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, he translate this, translates this verse as, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that because that's exactly what Jesus did. And, and the neighborhood he chose, especially as you start to zoom in, was a neighborhood marked by poverty, oppression, and pain. Remember who Jesus was. 
He was a first century Palestinian Jewish man living under Roman occupation in a town that you could barely find on a map. Jesus, Jesus set up shop in the gutter. Right? That's what's going on here. That's what John is trying to communicate to us. Jesus set up shop in the gutter, which means that the temple presence of God the, 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 the presence that was only accessible once a year by one person throughout Israel's history sets up shop in the gutter. You guys tracking? Massively important. And we're going to dig at that a little bit more, but, but, but let's keep going, let's keep going. The text then says that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, so for the next few minutes, we're going to get a little bit technical, so I want you to just bear with me, all right? The we in this passage is probably a reference to John and the disciples present during Jesus' earthly ministry. This is probably true of the us at the beginning of the verse. So, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, right? So, so most likely, he's referring back to himself and, and all of his buddies who, who traveled with Jesus during his earthly ministry. But I also believe there's some double meaning stuff going on here. Because while this literally refers to those who saw the person of Jesus, this gospel, if you remember from a few weeks ago, was written so that the people in this room might believe. Right? That's why it was written. In other words, the physical presence of Jesus experienced by those during his earthly ministry is, is, is one thing, but there's something else going on here. John is, pus is pushing us once again to dig beneath the surface. The words grace and truth and the context of seeing his glory, all of this language, all of these words and ideas if you were a careful reader of, of, of the scriptures and you, knew, and you knew the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, all of a sudden your attention is being drawn back to Moses. That's what's happening. And, and in fact, he brings up Moses in just a few minutes, and we'll get to that. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 34. And the event that we're going to, to look at, it takes place right after the golden calf incident. So if you've seen the Ten Commandments, you know about the golden calf incident. It's when the, the people of God, while Moses was away on the mountain, they decided, hey, we're going we're gonna to figure this out ourselves. And they make a golden calf and they worship it. And there's all sorts of like crazy stuff happening at the bottom of the mountain. And then what else happens is that when Moses hears about this, he comes down the mountain and he destroys angrily the, the tablets of the law. And then we see that Moses finds himself in the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting is the place where Moses would go before the tabernacle was built to meet with God. And it says he would meet with God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And during that conversation, Moses pleads with God and asks him to see his glory. He's like, I want to see your glory, God. And, and God makes it clear that Moses cannot see his glory because if you see my glory, you're not going to make it. But he's like, but he's like you know what? I'm going to let you catch a glimpse. I'm going to let you catch a glimpse. And so it says in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Moses on the mountain, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And Moses like, was like, oh my gosh, he quickly bows his head and he worships. He's like, this is too much. Can't deal with this. But a key thing happens in verse 6. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And those two terms, coupled with the seeing God and the glory of God, carry the same truth as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. The point it's important. When John, what John wants his readers to understand is that the glory that was veiled from Moses on the mountain is the same glory that showed up in the Word who became flesh. It is why Jesus could say to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You guys tracking? What we need to notice is that the volume is getting turned up. The volume is getting turned up. During the times of the Exodus, the presence of God showed up on the mountain and in the tent of meeting, and only Moses was allowed to catch a brief glimpse. When the tabernacle and the temple, which came afterward, was built, the glory of God filled the temple, and Israel had access to God through the ministry of the high priest. At the incarnation, the infleshing of God, that same temple presence settled itself in the person of Jesus. And like we said earlier, Jesus pitched his tent in the gutter. So important. Now, a couple things that, that we need to understand, that this was always the plan of God, to dwell among his people. In the Garden of Eden, if we read it correctly as a temple story, God dwells among his people right in their midst. Remember, they were, they were naked and unashamed before God. The tabernacle and the temple were also places where heaven and earth came together and God, once again, dwelt with his people. The prophets spoke of a time when the presence of God would once again dwell with his people. See, this is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of the good news that God would move into the neighborhood and that he would pitch his tent in the gutter. That's the whole point of the story. See, that's, that's where, where, where the beginning of the story has been pushing us all the way from Genesis and, and, and the gutter was created in Genesis chapter 3 just to, to keep that in mind. And that's the force of this story. The entire Bible is driving toward this point. You guys tracking? Let's keep going. Then says, in verse 15, 17, through 17, as the volume keeps getting turned up, it says this. I'm, I'm in Exodus. I don't belong in Exodus right now. It says, verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, so really quickly, verse 15 is like a parenthesis. 
And, and what's happening is here is that, that the text is pushing pause for a second to kind of have a conversation with us, like face-to-face. Basically saying and reminding us once again who we're talking about. We're talking about the one who ranks before John the Baptist because he was before me. In other words, remember, we're talking about the eternal one. It's almost like, like you know what I just said? You know what I just said about, about, about God becoming flesh, the word becoming flesh? We're still talking about the eternal one, the one that has no beginning. That one, that one is the one who became flesh. And then, and then he gets back to his argument. Now, depending on your translation, I'm, I'm a little excited here, so you've got to bear with me. There's, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff that shows up in this particular test. Now, depending on your translation, verse 16 If you read it, verse 16, it says, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 16 either starts with the word and or the word for, depending on your translation. If it's for, then you have an updated version of the ESV. If it's and, it's wrong, okay? Just track with me. I'm going to tell you why. Because if we read the end of verse 14 and we kind of remove the parenthesis, you'll see why this matters. And I'm going to read it for you. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, because or for from his fullness we have all received grace instead of grace. Right? They're clearly linked to each other. To be technical, again, for another second, the grace we receive is drawn from the glory of the Son, a glory that is full of grace and truth, right? That's what's full of grace and truth, is the glory. And what do we mean by the glory filled with grace and truth? Well, it says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18 through 19, it says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, when, when, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, God responds, I'll show you my goodness. Right? It's like Moses is like, I'm looking for a light show, and God's like, I'm going to show you who I am. Okay? I'm going to show you who I am. And then he unpacks who he is in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The point is that when we ask to see the glory of God, what we're really asking, even if we don't know what we're asking, is to see the character of God, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love that endures forever and ever. That's the glory of God, not some cosmic light show. Although, right, he's got that too, but that's not the point. You guys track him with what's going on here. And so we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, because from his fullness we have all received grace instead of grace. I changed it. I don't know if you noticed that, because the word is better translated as instead rather than upon. What do I mean? Well, in verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses, or because the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now track with me for a second. I'm making some interpretive decisions. I told you I'm going to be a little technical For a few minutes, so just track with me, okay? There's a little bit of grammar going on here. I'm arguing that the grace we receive in Christ 
is a grace that replaces or better outshines some previous grace. The grace we receive in Christ outshines some previous grace. I'm also arguing that the previous grace being outshined is the grace that God provided for his people through the law of Moses. So I'm not saying that one's not grace and the other is. I'm saying one grace is just a little bit better. And by a little bit, I mean a whole lot better. Okay? In other words, God graciously provided his people with what we described throughout our series on the Ten Commandments as rules for the liberated life, a pathway of freedom, a way to live as a freed people, liberated and saved from the, slave, saved from the slavery imposed upon them in Jesus, but in Egypt, but in Christ, and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we're given the power to actually do it and experience it. We can actually live the life of freedom that is laid out for us because of this better grace. You guys, you guys tracking with that? Does that make sense? Are we, are we kind of all on the same page here? So check out what it says. It, keep, it keeps going, right? It becomes clear as we read the passage because in verse 18 it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. So no one has seen God And to be clear, the God who has now returned to the Father's side or bosom, if you have the old school King James Version, which is actually a better translation. But then he says that the Father has made him known. This is important. This made him known language literally means that the person of Jesus and the work that he did during his earthly ministry provided us with a detailed account of the nature and character of God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. If you've seen him, you've seen the glory of the Father. To look at the life of Christ is to look at a detailed account of the character and nature of Almighty God. And what does that mean? Well, according to the text that we've just been reading and according to the entire New Testament, God moves in. But he doesn't just move move in. He he doesn't operate at, at arm's length, but he actually pitches his tent in the gutter. He moves toward those who need him. So so he moves in and he moves toward, and he doesn't just move towards those who need him, he cares for them. Tangibly, in obedience to his Father, he cares for their physical needs, and in dying, he cares for our spiritual needs. And the point I'm trying to make, the Word, who was in the beginning with God, entered a world of darkness, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he unleashed light and life so bright and so vibrant that not even the gates of hell were able to hold it back. This is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. Jesus pitched his tent in the gutter. When we look at Jesus, we see the character of God. If you remember back to our Philippians passage, um, Philippians 2, which I I think I reference almost every week now, right? I used to reference Genesis 1 through 3. Now I reference Philippians 2 every single time we preach. But it says, says, although he was in the form of God, and then we talked about that verse, and I said, said, uh, another translation of that 
is because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God. He did not count his godness to be something exploited for his own gain. Because of his godness, he was humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. That ontologically or essentially or the nature and character of God is one of utter humility. That's shocking. That's shocking because most of us think of God as, as like, like whoa, whoo, whoo, whoo. and God's like, no, 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 no. I'm coming right in. And not only am I coming in, but I'm coming to what you might perceive as the worst of places. And what does that tell us about God? It tells us that God is a humble, self-giving, sacrificially loving being. That's what this text is trying to, to get through to us. And, and I don't know if you remember how I said that Israel's story served as a sign pointing forward to something beyond anything we could have imagined and maybe beyond what we ourselves might be expecting. Here is where the volume of the story gets turned up to a 10. Not 11. It goes to 11 later. But here it's just 10. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're just going to look at verse 18 through 20. It says, flee from immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he tells us why this is so important. He explains why it's a big deal to sin against the body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple. Your body is a temple. So let's, 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 let's rewind for a second. Let's think back on the story, right? Jesus, God, dwells with his people. Let's go over here because, right, you guys read left to right. God creates Garden of Eden, a garden temple where he dwells with his people in their midst, right? Sin kind of lets loose, doesn't kind of, it does, and, and they're, they're, they're cast out of the temple, out of the garden. And then, move the story forward a little bit, Noah is supposed to build a new garden, if you will. He plants a garden. I don't know if you know the story about Noah. Um, but that garden doesn't go well, right? It leads to more sin. And, and, then, and then the story keeps moving forward. And, and now we have Israel in the wilderness, and God makes his presence known in the midst of the tent of meeting, then the tabernacle, and then the temple. And then ultimately the temple presence of God leaves the, the temple, and we're brought into the New Testament, there's this prolonged period of silence, and then, bam, God, the Word is made flesh, and He dwells among us. He temples Himself. He tabernacles. He enfleshes Himself among us. And then a few chapters later, we learn that, wait, where a temple? Where the place? Where the, where the, the Shekinah glory of God, the temple presence of God, makes its bed? 
In other words, the gutter that God pitched his tent in, it's us. It's us. Which means that the temple presence of God, the glory that Moses saw on the mountain that was promised through the prophets and and was seen in the face of Jesus during his earthly ministry is now right here in our midst, saving us, making us holy, drawing us into deeper communion with himself and empowering us to move toward others in both word and deed with the hope of the gospel. And notice what it says at the end of this passage in 1 Corinthians 6. If you look at your Bibles in verse 19, verse 20, excuse me, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Because you're a temple, because the Holy Spirit of God, the temple presence of God is in you, like, you better act like it. You better act like it. And, and what his point is, is that there is a holiness that's required of us, but, but the beauty of it, right? And we talked about this last week, is that, is that when we trip and stumble and fall and that holiness kind of gets broken up, like we don't need to go and make sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament. We don't need to, to make atonement for our sins because, because that final work of atonement was made when the true temple was crushed and then three days later was raised again. And so now we are forgiven and the Spirit of God resides in us. And so even when we sin, the Bible says, says that wherever sin is, grace is there all the more. And so what God's saying is like, okay, like you messed up, but like don't run away from me because you messed up. Because what you need to know is that no matter what you've done, I'm right here. I'm in it with you. And I can bring you out. I can, I can drag you out of, of, of the muck and the mire, right, to use some of those old, older terms. Like he, He's like, I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to do that for you because, because my son Jesus, he died on a cross. And he was raised to new life. And he crushed every bit of the enemy so he doesn't have the same access to you that maybe he once did but you know who you have access to you have access to me through the holy spirit of god that resides in you the temple presence of god redeemer fellowship resides in us he's here he's here he is in our midst saving us drawing us making us holy, convicting us of sin, knowing us, and drawing us into deeper communion with him. He pitched his tent in the gutter, and you and I are the gutter. That's good news. That's good news. And so what that means, God being with us, and him wanting to draw near to us, it means that that we, we can go to him. Right? Do you believe, and this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Do you believe that the presence of God has pitched his tent in you? And that he wants to draw you into deeper communion with the triune God? Do you believe that when Jesus said it would be better to have the Holy Spirit rather than his physical presence, that he was telling the truth? You believe that? Or do you think it would be better to have Jesus sitting next to you? Because Jesus says it's not. Do you believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life means that you have literal access to God? Do you believe that when you pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are actually communing with God and he hears us and answers our prayers? 
Do you believe that when you move into the lives of others with the hope of the gospel, that it's the Holy Spirit empowering you to do so? See, the point of this sermon is twofold. God loves us, and he has chosen to pitch his tent in the gutter that is our life. But the second thing is that God wants to continue extending that same love, grace, and truth to the world around us, remembering that it's always the kindness of God that leads to repentance, and, and that we are no better than the people we cast judgment on, and so we should not draw lines in the sand preventing us from tangibly loving them because we're in the same gutter as them. That's really important if we're going to understand this whole, this whole Christianity thing. To be drawn into communion with God, to be saved, to be a Christian, it doesn't make us inherently better than anybody. That's not what it means. It means that our sins have been forgiven that they have been atoned for by the, by the washing of blood and that now we have fellowship with God. But it doesn't mean that there's anything in us that makes us better than the next guy or the next girl. What it reminds us of is that we're all kind of on the same playing field and to allow anything to put up a barrier between the love of Christ and the world around us, that's just straight up of the devil. You guys catching that? There is nobody, no group, no political affiliation, no identity, no sexual identity that should prevent you from moving toward others in love and mercy, and grace. There's nothing. There's nothing. And we got to get over that. We have to. Because, because Jesus broke through that barrier when he died on the cross. It's, it's, it's why all of us have the temple presence of God residing in us. Because he broke through. I'm not making excuses for sin, and I'm not saying we need to be okay with sin. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the sin of the world around us, the culture wars that are being fought, that's not our battle, guys. It's not our fight. Our fight is to move toward the brokenness of this world with love and light because darkness can't win over light. It doesn't work. I was having this conversation with my son and, and, and we were talking about how like, like, yeah, like if you go into a pitch black room and you, and you light a candle, it's no longer pitch black, right? Like, that's just how it works. And he's like, yeah, but like still, like I said, I said, well, why don't we try? We'll go to the sanctuary one night, like when it's completely dark. It was like right before youth group, it was pitch black in here. And I'm like, come on, let's go. Let's go check it out. He's like, no, come on, that's not going to work. I'm like, I'm like, oh. And we stood right there in the middle and I lit a lighter. Now, I'm not saying that it was like, you know, like, like the, the Christmas tree Rockefeller Center. That's not, that's not the point I'm trying to make. But what I am making is that it wasn't dark anymore. It wasn't dark anymore. You were able to see. And in fact, even standing in that middle of that room with just the lighter lit, you could see like a, a vague sort of semblance of the wall. Like you can, you can see like the outline of the drums and, and you could see. 
Because, because darkness can't win over light. It doesn't work. There's something scientific about that, right, Chris? I'm sure. I don't know. I'm not a science guy, but that feels science-y. And so, so the point I'm trying to make is that because we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, because we have the temple presence of God residing in us, the Shekinah glory of God, we can't allow ourselves to be fearful of entering into dark places. We just can't. We can't. We don't have to be. We don't have to be. Because, because we're the light of the world. Right? We're the light of the world. In Christ, we're the light of the world. And darkness cannot overcome light. That's just true. That's the truth of the gospel, and we need to, to get our minds around that. The culture wars, they're not our fight. We love God, and we love neighbor. And, and if we forget how to do it, we open up Philippians chapter 2, and we read it, and we're like, oh, okay, it's about obedience and humility and sacrificial love. Okay, cool, 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 I get it now. All right, back to it, right? Because we're going to forget. We're going like, to be like, oh, well, how, right? I'm supposed to, like, I'm on this team, so I'm supposed to hate that team, right? 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 That's, that's how we start. Like, and, and very easily, we can find ourselves moving into that rhythm. Flip through, flip through social media for five minutes. You, you, find, you find your team. Because all the things that you've liked over the years, guess what? That's your team. And they know it. And they tell you, this is your team. And then all of a sudden, someone from the other team sneaks in, and you're like, what the heck is that? Get! And you, you dislike it right? I'll show them. They're not on my team. Oh, but see, like Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not the point. Go. Love me and love your neighbor. Don't worry about what team they're on. Just go be about the business of God. Go be about the business of the good news. You forget what that's like? Philippians 2 will tell you. That's the master story. Love, obedience, humility, grace. That's what's going on here. Jesus pitched his tent in the gutter. He broke through the barrier, preventing us from experiencing the glory of God through the person of Jesus. And he has now empowered us to do the same through the power of his Holy Spirit. My prayer is that we would be a people so filled with the love and temple presence of God that we would not allow ourselves to be barred off from those around us remembering daily that Jesus chose a gutter to pitch his tent in and that you and I are at the bottom of it. We have to remember that. And if you're sitting here this morning and, and you're like, I don't, I don't know if, 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 if what's found in my gutter is forgivable, I don't know if God can make my gutter right. Oh, no, 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 no. That's the point. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he went so far into the gutter that, like, you have no idea how far down he went into the gutter. Right? The descent of Christ. We, we talked about in our discipleship cross, uh, class that, that he descended into hell and, and, and he descended into the place of the dead and, and he went so deep into death that there's nothing you can throw at him that he's like, nah, I can't. You went too far. 
There's nothing. And so throw it all on him. I don't care what it is, whatever, whatever past sexual sin it might have been, whatever past uh, relationship sin it might have been, whatever, whatever it is, right? Whatever shame you're carrying, Jesus went deeper than that. And we could throw it on him and he will forgive us and save us and he'll send us out to do the same for others. That is good news, Redeemer Fellowship. We have to believe that. We have to believe that Jesus pitched his tent in the gutter and we are that gutter. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. We truly do. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you that not only did you go into the depths, Father, but you rose victorious, crushing death to pieces crushing our sin to pieces, making a mockery of the powers and authorities. Thank you so much for that, Lord God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.